Good morning. Happy Easter. Or better yet, happy Resurrection Day. <laughs> Amen. Today is the day that believers all around the world are celebrating the triumph of God over sin and death through the death, burial, and resurrection of our precious Lord Jesus. And we join with them, praising God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ for all they have done for us. Amen. But I often find that there are many believers that don't actually know the full extent of what they have done for us. Many still do not know that we have been made free. <laughs> they don't actually know that Jesus led captivity captive, which brings me to the title of my message. He led captivity captive. I took this title from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. I have it for you in two different translations because I like them. <laughs> the first one is the Murdoch translation, and it says this. Wherefore it is said, he ascended on high, and he carried captivity captive, and gave gifts to men. And in the Young's literal, it says, Wherefore he saith, having gone up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. What I want you to see in this verse is that captivity itself was taken captive. Some translations point to people who were captives being captive again and being taken somewhere. It is a, a very Catholic kind of idea that when Jesus arose from the dead, he had gone down into the place of the dead and he gathered up all the believers and took them to heaven. That's not this. <laughs> this is about captivity being captured, taken in under his power and control. In the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, the definition of captivity is this. It's the state of being a prisoner or being in the power of an enemy by force or by fate of war. It means to be in subjection to or to be in a state of being under somebody else's control, the control of another. That's captivity. And this was the condition of Israel when Jesus arrived on planet Earth. Israel was under the thumb of Rome, and they didn't like it at all. So they were anxiously awaiting the Messiah, because they fully expected that when Messiah came, God would use him to miraculously deliver them from their Roman captivity in the same way that God had used Moses to deliver Israel from their Egyptian captivity. But Jesus' mission was even greater than Moses' mission, and God used Moses to deliver a people, Israel from the power of a tyrant, Pharaoh. But Jesus' mission was to deliver all people from the captivity of the tyrant, sin. All people are born into the captivity of sin. So Jesus came to set all the captives free. And he said so in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus beginning his public ministry after being in the desert for 40 days and overcoming Satan's temptations. Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and he presents himself to Israel in the synagogues, including the synagogues in Nazareth. I will read from verse 14 through verse 30, but I'm going to have some interruptions in between. Begin with verse 14. 
Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, which means everybody loved him at first. (laughs) He was very popular at first, (laughs) verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. They all loved him at first. (laughs) They marveled at his gracious words. They were scripture. (laughs) Is this not Joseph's son? In other words, they were saying, wait a minute. We know where you were born. Well, they thought they did. We know who you belong to. (laughs) Um, You're a nice young man, but are you implying that you're the Messiah? That was basically the question. And he said, of course. <laughs> that was exactly what he was doing. He declared himself to be the Messiah. They knew that was a messianic scripture. And just to demonstrate that he is the Messiah, he prophesied to them. And he said, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. You can make demands on Jesus, but he doesn't have to listen. (laughs) And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus is basically revealing the hardness of their own hearts to them during this passage of Scripture. They had no doubt heard what Jesus had been doing, and he was, you know, going around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That gets around pretty quick. (laughs) I know a man. (laughs) You need to come see him. (laughs) He was getting very popular. But that wasn't the kind of Messiah they were actually looking for. They wanted a man of war, not a man of love. Someone they believed who could miraculously conquer the Roman Empire and set them free from their captivity to Rome. And Jesus just didn't fit the bill. He wasn't making soldiers out of anybody. (laughs) So we can see the same hardness of heart in the same story over in Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 53. It says this, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? He has a lot of family (laughs) who don't like him either. (laughs) And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. 
And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Even his brothers didn't believe in him. Verse 58, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, Jesus didn't suddenly run out of power or patience or compassion when he got to Nazareth. Oh, sorry, guys. It's all gone. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sure Jesus wanted to do many mighty works there, too. But they resisted him with adamant unbelief. In other words, they would not believe because they were offended at him. And offended people are not interested in receiving anything from the person from whom they are offended. <laughs> the same story over in Mark's version adds this to the mix. Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And it says, He, Jesus, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's like, that's nothing. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And he marveled at what? Their unbelief. Their unbelief. He says, I am the Messiah. I am doing miracles. Would you like one? <laughs> and they say, no thanks. Nothing has to come through you. Stubborn. <laughs> Healing came to town and they said, no thanks. We want what you've got. We just don't want to have to go to you to get it which was the point. It was only available through Jesus Christ. My point here is that not even Jesus could make people receive something that they weren't willing to receive. These particular Nazarenes were not believing, and they were not even willing <laughs> to believe. I remember back in the day when God asked me to quit smoking. <laughs> I said, don't ask me to do that, because I'm not willing. And don't you go changing my willing. <laughs> he changed my willing. <laughs> but because I wanted him to. <laughs> he doesn't go around changing people's will. He will be happy to convince you to see things his way. But he doesn't force himself on anyone. Now, understanding this, that this is all about how they're receiving Jesus and their own unbelief, helps us understand the rest of this passage. Picking up again in Luke chapter 4 with verse 25. This is Jesus still speaking. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. The lowest of the low, a Gentile and a woman, <laughs> and a widow woman at that. <laughs> she was not anybody worth noticing. Why would the God of the universe care about her? She was a nobody in the middle of nowhere who simply believed the word of the Lord through the mouth of the prophet and received miraculous provision for her and her family. Verse 27, Jesus said, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed. Well, he's really poking them with a stick. <laughs> but only Naaman, the Syrian, 
another Gentile, who at first was offended by the word of the Lord from the prophet Elisha because of his pride. Elisha said, go dunk seven times in the Jordan. He's like, I don't think so. <laughs> he wanted a miracle, but he didn't want to get it the way God said he should. But then he reconsidered. Love that. He reconsidered and chose to believe and chose to receive a miraculous healing by acting on what the prophet said to him. Verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What? <laughs> because Jesus was pointing out that Israel, past and then present, had a terrible reputation for being hard-hearted, unfaithful, and unwilling to listen to the word of the Lord through the mouth of the prophet. There's a prophet standing in front of them saying, I am the Messiah, and they're doing the exact same thing Israel has always done. Put the fingers in their ears, la, la, la. <laughs> and the problem with that was that the Israel was not then receiving all that God wanted them to have because they were off trying to get what they wanted through worshiping false gods or through their own prideful self-righteousness, neither of which works. <laughs> the Jews knew that they were not supposed to be in captivity. They knew it was not God's will for them as a nation. God told them he wanted them to always be the head and never be the tail. But they would not listen or believe the word of the Lord through the mouth of the prophets. So, while Israel was suffering due to her own unfaithfulness, God blessed these two Gentiles based on what? Grace. <laughs> His absolutely free loving kindness and their faith. It wasn't grace alone. It was grace apprehended by faith. The word of God to these two Gentiles gave them the opportunity to take God at his word, to believe him, and then to act on what he told them to do, and then to receive what they needed as promised. Each one had to act on what God told them to do through the prophet. Naaman had to choose to dunk himself in a dirty river seven times. Don't you think of like a number three, he's going, is this working? Is it getting better? <laughs> As if it was the water that would change him. <laughs> it was faith that apprehends grace. And it didn't appear until he finished what God told him to do. And then the widow woman had to do a hard thing. She had to choose to use her last bit of flour and oil to bake a little cake for a prophet. And she's got nothing left for herself and her son. Right, I'm thinking, I don't know if I would have done that. <laughs> You're a grown-up. <laughs> but she knew it was the word of the Lord through the mouth of a prophet. She knew God was speaking to her. So he tells her, if you do this, it will go well with you. And of course it did. So Jesus is telling this to these Nazarenes. They then choose to treat Jesus the same way they treated all of the prophets throughout her history. They ignored him, and then they tried to kill him. 
<laughs> Verse 29. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, Jesus was indeed going to die, but it wasn't going to be that day. <laughs> and it wasn't going to be as a victim. It was going to be on a Passover, and it was going to be as a victor. Jesus had a mission to accomplish, and Jesus was going to make sure that that mission was accomplished. So he just miraculously, and we don't know how, we don't know how he did it. It says in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. You're like, how, how did you do that exactly? <laughs> they grabbed you, they're dragging you out to a cliff, they're going to throw you off, and you just, what, disappear? <laughs> Where did he go? <laughs> but Jesus had a mission. He had people to heal and demons to cast out and sins to forgive and disciples to teach and Pharisees to irritate. <laughs> because he loved them and wanted them to reconsider. He irritated them on purpose. <laughs> and all of these things were included amongst all that he had listed in his mission statement, which was in verses 18 and 19 of the same chapter. I have it for you again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me by the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor. What would be good news to the poor? How about you don't have to be poor anymore? <laughs> he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive. That's good news. Recovering of sight to the blind. That's good news. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. That is good news to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, when I usually read this, I want to add the word and. <laughs> like this is one thing in a list of things. But it's not. What it actually says is, it's the main thing that he was sent to do. That includes preaching good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and setting at liberty those who are oppressed. There's no and. It's more like a colon. All of this equals this. <laughs> to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It doesn't actually use uh, the word grace, but it sure could. <laughs> to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor refers to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. And it pretty much sums up what Jesus came to do, spiritually speaking. All of the rules surrounding the year of Jubilee are found in Leviticus 25. I'm not going to read them. <laughs> Most of them. Just three little verses. <laughs> it starts with Leviticus 25, verse 8. says this, And you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. These take forever to just say 49 years. <laughs> Verse 9, Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet through all your land. Verse 10, And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. It was a great proclamation of freedom. Freedom from debt, freedom from slavery, and it all began with the Day of Atonement. 
this 50th year. They counted seven years and you had a Sabbath. And seven years and you had a Sabbath year. And that meant they could not work the fields. And then they got to the Jubilee, the 49th year. They could not work the fields. And then there's another year. Another sabbatical. Now that sounds like, oh, oh sabbatical, yay! <laughs> but you could not work the land. That sounds good in one sense. Yay, we don't have to work the land. <laughs> they could do other kinds of work. They could make money different ways, but they couldn't work the land. Now that would be scary if you have a half a dozen children you have to feed. <laughs> what do you mean we can't work the land? Hmm. Like I said, they could do other kinds of work. They just couldn't do that kind of work. What helped them not to be so afraid of not working the land was that all of their debts were canceled. Imagine that. <laughs> no debts. House paid for. Cars paid for. Yay! We're like, okay, so I can't work the land. I think we can handle this. <laughs> and all the indentured servants were set free, and everyone was supposed to go back to their homeland and to their inheritance. That's important. What this meant was that every 50 years, the poor ceased to be poor. It was God's way of kind of straightening things out and making things more equal. Because the people who got indentured was because they had debt. Then they couldn't feed those six children. <laughs> and they became indentured servants. God never wanted them to have to do that. So he said every 50 years, everybody goes back to their home and back to their inheritance. Nobody is poor forever. Amen. So they were blessed to have this rest. But... They had to put their trust in God for their provision because they couldn't provide provision for themselves. Sounds like a lesson in grace and faith. Out of God's goodness, God's grace, he provided rest for his people and his land. That was the point. The land needed to rest. But his people needed to actually act on what God said. And they didn't usually do it. They think they only actually did this two or three times overall. <laughs> Why? Why would you not do what the Lord told you to do? Because if I don't provide for myself, I have to trust God to do it. Now, it sounds easy. <laughs> I'll just trust God. <laughs> When everything in you says, no, i got to plant seeds to feed my kids. <laughs> God says, no, trust me. So they actually needed to stop working for their provision and start believing God's word regarding their provision. They needed to place their trust in his word to them, not trust their own ability to provide for their provision. Sound familiar? Lady in Zarephath? <laughs> now, that being said, do not quit your job. <laughs> I've heard people take this scripture and go, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to take a year off. If you can afford to do that, great. But you are not an Israelite. <laughs> and you don't have that kind of year of jubilee available to you at this time. <laughs> so you don't quit your job unless God actually tells you to quit your job. But he'll probably give you another one. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
we don't have the year of Jubilee like they did. What we have is the spiritual reality that the year of Jubilee represented and has been provided to us through the blood of Jesus. Again, the year of Jubilee began with the Day of Atonement. I had never put those two things together. See, it was no accident. It was the one day of the year that the Israelites could be absolutely sure that all of their sins were forgiven and another year of life and blessing had been granted to them. When they blow the chauffeur on the Day of Atonement, declaring that God has accepted the sacrifices, they know their name is written down in the Book of Life for one year. <laughs> for one year. You're not going to die this next year. So are you going to starve to death? <laughs> no. That's why God married those two things together. You can believe me. You've got, he's granted. It was granted. Walk in what is granted. I have granted you the blessing. You're not going to die. I promise for a whole year. So they didn't have to worry about starving to death. <laughs> What happens on the Day of Atonement is the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies and presents the blood of one of two prescribed sacrificial goats. The Day of Atonement has two sacrifices. It's the only sacrifice they had that they did it quite this way. They draw lots, which meant they would uh, grab rocks. And each stone represented one of the goats. So what happened was when the high priest would grab the lots, it almost always fell that the sacrificial goat that had to be killed was in the right hand, right hand of power. The guilt of the sins would be placed on the second goat, and the goat would go out into the wilderness. So you got two goats, one dies in the temple, one dies off a cliff. <laughs> well, one is killed, and one is let go. <laughs> the high priest would confess the sins of the people over the scapegoat, the one that they're going to let go. The other one would go, and this blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, one of the things they would do, because this is a two-part offering, is they would take a red ribbon and tie it to the goat, usually its horns. Now, this was not part of the prescribed procedure. God never told them to do this. But the legend that the Jews have kept says that there was a high priest who had favor with God, and he asked God, to turn the ribbon white if he accepted the offerings. You see, the high priest went in and he offered the blood of the goat, but that's all that happened. You don't, you don't see any, there's no evidence that God's happy. <laughs> and then you take the goat, confess the sins, send the sins out into the wilderness, you don't see that God's happy. <laughs> they wanted to see that God was happy. <laughs> So he asked that God would supernaturally turn the red ribbon white. And he did. They're like, evidence! Evidence! We've got evidence! We're blessed! We got evidence! We're forgiven! We got evidence! We live in the Jubilee! We got evidence! <laughs> they even tied a red ribbon to the door of the temple so that everyone could see that the ribbon, the red ribbon turned white. God was happy. 
if God's happy with you, you can have anything. <laughs> God knows the fragility of the human heart. <laughs> and he knows how hard it is for us to believe just because God said so. Sometimes that's hard. <laughs> I know you said so, but I want to see. <laughs> So God, in his mercy and grace, said, okay, I'll let you see. <laughs> and he turned their red ribbons white. Now, what was funny is they know from the Jewish writings that he actually did this. And originally, the goat was supposed to go out into the wilderness so that everyone can see that your sins are far from you. They can't come back. Look, out in the wilderness, it's going to die. Your sins are taken away from the east and to the west. But one time, the goat came back. <laughs> and they're like, no! <laughs> you, the sins can't come back. And so that's when they started shoving it off a cliff. <laughs> because the scripture doesn't tell them to shove it off a cliff. <laughs> Sins are not allowed to come back in the name of Jesus. <laughs> so, with the red ribbon turning white, they could shout for joy and rejoice. The word jubilee, in one translation, means to shout for joy. When you see the red ribbon turn white, we can shout for joy. We're blessed. We're provided for. We get to rest in God's goodness. It was all because their sins were taken away. They were considered sin-free, which meant they were also death-free for a whole year, <laughs> which meant they could be fear-free. And not fearing sin or death for a whole year because they had been made free from the power of sin and death for one whole year. Amen. That was good news back then. <laughs> so let the Jubilee begin. Let the party get started by how? By setting the captives free, by letting everyone return to their homeland. Let the poor be poor no more. Let the blind see. Let the dead be raised, because we're sin-free. Through the Old Testament scriptures, we know that the law of sin and death entered the world through Adam and Eve. They obviously didn't wholeheartedly believe what the Lord had told them about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't believe that if they ate of the tree, they would do this thing called die-die. <laughs> In Hebrew, it is literally die-die. That's how in Hebrew they wanted to express something with emphasis. You're not just going to die. You're going to die! <laughs> That's how they were supposed to read it. <laughs> their sin would cause them to be separated from God as their life source. Just as an analogy, go with me here. <laughs> Adam and Eve were created with a sort of spiritual umbilical cord. Remember, this is just a picture. <laughs> we don't have umbilical cords. It's just a picture. It illustrates that the source of life came from God. So as long as they were connected to God, they had God working in them, for them, with them, everything was good. 
But when they did what God told them not to do, cut their umbilical cord. Oops. <laughs> Got any tape? <laughs> Can we put this back together, God? <laughs> and they died spiritually. To die just really means to be separated from life. We understand that when a person dies, their spirit leaves their body. And their body has no life in itself. It needs a spirit. Okay? Same thing. <laughs> when they, uh, they cut their umbilical cord, they were disconnected from God. They had no life in themselves. They had human life. They didn't have God life. So, what they found out, that God was right. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you die, die. You die spiritually. You get your umbilical cord clipped. And then eventually, you physically die. He wasn't kidding when he said, die, die. <laughs> and they did die spiritually. I know some people want to argue about this point, but they died spiritually, which simply meant that their spirit was no longer connected to God. That's all that it meant. God is the only one who has life, real life, everlasting life. So death for humans is just separation, separation from their body. Their spirit goes to heaven as a believer, and their body stays here until we come back and get them. <laughs> when the spirit leaves, the body is dead. It's just separation. For a long time, I'd struggled with the word dead. Because in my mind, if something is dead, it ceases to exist. No. <laughs> if something is dead, it has no life source. I like the analogy of cut flowers. My husband bought me beautiful flowers for our anniversary. They're all cut. Guess what? They're starting to die. <laughs> I got them yesterday. <laughs> They're separated from their life source. They don't cease to exist. They just don't have life. But if the spirit of a man has no God in it, that's what dead means. That's all that it means, that it's separated from the life of God. We know this is true because the Apostle Paul tells us that as sinners, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were not connected to the life of God. People who have not yet received the life of God do not actually have life, real, everlasting life. They're spiritually dead. They're not connected to God. We were all living in a life of darkness under the power of sin and death. We were all captives. We were all prisoners of sin and Satan with no way out. <laughs> and we can see this truth in, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. The words in italics were added by the translators, and the one word in red was added by me. <laughs> uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And his fullness fills you. I love that they put this here, because it's carried over from the previous chapter. And his point is, you are now filled with the fullness of God as a believer even though you were once like corpses, dead in your sins and offenses. It wasn't that long ago that you lived in the religion, customs, and values of this world, obeying the dark ruler of the earthly realm who fills the atmosphere with his authority and works diligently in the hearts of those who are disobedient to the truth of God. This corruption that was in us from birth was expressed through the deeds and desires of our former self. We have a new self now. <laughs> we lived by whatever natural cravings 
and thoughts our minds dictated, living as rebellious children subject to God's wrath like everyone else. We were all living in captivity prior to Christ. And God didn't want any of his kids living in captivity. <laughs> he didn't want them living under the power of sin and death and Satan. He wanted them to be free and to live free in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he implemented his plan to bring forth an eternal day of atonement and an eternal year of jubilee. The Day of Atonement must come before the announcement of the year of Jubilee because sin is the power that has taken mankind captive. And in order for man to be truly free, he must be forgiven of all of his sin and the power of sin must be destroyed. Now what we have through the Lord Jesus Christ is far greater than what the Israelites had. But the pictures of the Day of Atonement help us understand what transacted on our behalf. God gave us lots of pictures so that what they were doing back there, we could go, oh, that's what you meant. <laughs> First, he is our high priest, and it was his blood that he presented to the Father on behalf of all mankind. He was the first goat. That's the picture of the first goat, the blood that is brought into the Holy of Holies. He presented his own sinless blood as an eternally effective blood sacrifice, and we can see this in Hebrews chapter 9 beginning with verse 11. But now the anointed one has become the king priest of every wonderful thing that has come, for he serves in a greater, more perfect heavenly tabernacle. This was in heaven. What they did on earth was a copy of what Jesus did in heaven. And he has entered once forever into the holiest sanctuary of all. This, this sounds ridiculous to a Jew. Once forever? <laughs> yes, once forever! <laughs> but not with the blood of animal sacrifices, but with the sacred blood of his own sacrifice. And he alone made our salvation secure forever. Once forever. Verse 13, under the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer were sprinkled on those who were defiled and effectively cleansed them outwardly from their ceremonial impurities. Yet how much more will the sacred blood of Messiah thoroughly cleanse our consciences? For by the power of the eternal spirit, he has offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice and now frees us from our dead works to worship and serve the living God. So Jesus is the one who has enacted a new covenant with a new relationship with God so that those who accept the invitation will receive the eternal inheritance that he promised to his heirs. For he died to release us from the guilt of the violations committed under the first covenant. What's interesting is one of the things that they did when they put that little red ribbon on the door of the temple, it was to show that God had cleansed the temple. The temple was cleansed from all impurity. Not just the sins of the people, but the temple itself. The temple itself. <laughs> Our temple has been cleansed. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 9, again in the Passion. And then he said, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes the sin, he abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces that entire system with a new covenant. By God's will, we have been purified and made holy once and for all through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Yet, 
Yet everyday priests, and this was then, this is not now, everyday priests still served, ritually offering the same sacrifices again and again. And they were completely ineffective. It didn't work anymore. The ribbons stopped turning white. <laughs> Those sacrifices can never take away sin's guilt. But when the priest had offered the one supreme sacrifice for sin, for all time, he sat down on a throne at the right hand of God, awaiting until all of his whispering enemies are subdued and turned into his footstool. And by his one perfect sacrifice, he made, past him, us perfectly holy and complete for all time. This is the picture of what happened in the temple when the high priest presented the blood of the sin offering. But nobody got to see it except the high priest and God. Nobody got to see any evidence. <laughs> they knew a transaction happened, but they just didn't have any evidence. But there was a second one. God knows how we are. We like evidence. But there was a second transaction on earth. And this is what the second goat symbolizes. It was Jesus on the cross. The Father had laid on him the sin of the whole world. Everybody there knew he was being punished by God. They just believed that it was for his own sins. Little did they know it was actually for their own. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. In the BBE version. Men made sport of him, turning away from him. He was a man of sorrows, marked by disease, and like one from whom men's faces are turned away. He was looked down on, and we put no value on him. It was our pain he took, and our diseases were put on him. Well, to us, he seemed as one diseased on whom God's punishment had come. But it was for our sins he was wounded, and for our evil doings he was crushed. He took the punishment by which we have peace, and by his wounds we are made well. We all went wandering like sheep, all going every one of us after his desire, and the Lord put on him the punishment of us all. Our Heavenly Father imputed the sin of the world unto Jesus. That means he alone took the legal responsibility to take our sins into death, just like the second goat on Yom Kippur. Everyone recognized, everyone there said, you are being punished. They knew it was punishment for sin. They just didn't know it was for their sin. <laughs> and they didn't care at that point. <laughs> and then Jesus died just like the second goat, in full view of everyone. Everyone got to see the second goat die. He died and he was buried. Everyone saw it, even if they didn't understand it. But did it work? Did Jesus really die away our sin? God says he did. But how do we know? How can our hearts be sure? Evidence! <laughs> we have evidence! Supernatural physical evidence! It's called the resurrection! <laughs> the ribbon turned white for the whole world. The sin debt of all mankind is paid in full and death is forever defeated. The sin that held the world in captivity to Satan is defeated. Man's sin is forever forgiven. 
death has no hold on those who believe and receive what Jesus has done. Captivity has been captured. Let the trumpets resound. The year of Jubilee is here, and it's an eternal Jubilee. The slaves are free. <laughs> the debts are canceled. And the family of God can return to their father and rest in his inheritance that he has so amply provided. We have evidence, supernatural physical evidence, with no less than 500 eyewitnesses. <laughs> Our Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he has poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit in us bears witness, gives us evidence that we are the children of God and heirs according to the promise. We are no longer slaves. We are sons of the living God. God knew that our human hearts need proof, real evidence <laughs> that what Jesus said he would do, he actually did. He took captivity captive and he made us free from all the power of sin, death, and Satan. And all he asks is that we believe what the Father has spoken through the mouth of his prophet. <laughs> that we act on what he says and that we receive what he has promised. John 11, beginning with verse 25, says this. this the, the greatest prophet of all time said this. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? <laughs> and she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said that everyone who lives and believes in him shall never actually die. And unless Jesus physically returns to earth in our lifetime, we will all eventually go through the doorway of death. But death will never be master over us. It is defeated. We have supernatural physical evidence that it is in fact true. Jesus rose from the dead, proving the captivity of sin and death is completely defeated and the year of Jubilee has come. He knew that we would want proof that we could go into death too and yet not actually ever die. So he went first. We have evidence. Amen. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your truth and I thank you for the evidence. We thank you, Father God, that the living God lives in us and we can never be separated from you. We, Lord, we thank you that you understand sometimes we need to see. <laughs> you know it's hard for us to believe sometimes, but we thank you, Father God, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. You help us to believe when we have a hard time seeing. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your amazing grace, for your amazing love and for the faith, Father God, that you have grown up into our hearts so that we can believe what the prophets have said regarding you and that you as our prophet has said to us. We thank you for the day of atonement and we thank you for the year of Jubilee. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And you are dismissed. <laughs>